Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm a 60-year-old Alex Hall Hall. And this is Disorder, the podcast where we try to find order in our mad, 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 mad world. And this week, we thought we'd do something a little bit fun and celebrate Alex's 60th here on the podcast. And to do that a little different, we were thinking it might be interesting to take stock about how we feel about our world and how the generation that we grew up in and when we came of age affected not only our career choices, but how we think of the world, its institutions, and where we're headed. And then halfway through, we are going to take listeners' questions, which uh, I really enjoyed doing with you, Alex, during the Christmas episode. So are you psyched for that? Absolutely. And we so appreciate all the people who have written in with really thoughtful comments and reactions. It's very encouraging and inspiring for us. It is. And therefore, if you are one of our mega orderers and you have ideas, thoughts, criticisms, questions, please write us at disordershow at gmail.com. And do not worry if you are afraid of sharing your identity You can just ask your question in a general way, and we will anonymize them. So thank you, thank you to all the amazing listeners out there. All right, so let's crack on. Alex, the big six. Oh, (laughs) happy birthday. Would you allow me to say over the airwaves, that although the listeners can't see you, I guarantee them you do not look a day over 56. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great. Thanks, Jason. (laughs) That's like my husband calling this podcast surprisingly good. That is some kind of compliment, Jason. So, Alex, I was thinking when you pass one of these milestones, you sometimes think about what did I think it would be like, you know, Or if I could go back, what are the lessons I would tell my younger self? So would you join the diplomatic service today? And, you know, what are the lessons you'd tell your younger self? I have been thinking a little bit about it because 60 does feel quite a big deal. And I can't quite believe I've made it here and I'm grateful. If I was starting over again and the world was in the same position it was when I became a diplomat, yes, I would definitely do it all again. It felt like the UK was a country that had impact and influence on the world stage, and idealism was in the air. I was in my early years as the Cold War was ending, and we felt like democracy was spreading. The United Nations appeared to be able to make a difference for the first time. Russia was not vetoing everything. We felt like we were making successful interventions around the world, and it really was an inspiring and a motivating time to be a diplomat. However, would 
I join the diplomatic service today. And I get loads of friends who contact me and say, my son or my daughter is just about to leave college and they're thinking about applying to join the foreign office. What advice would you give them? Would you still recommend it? And I'm I'm afraid I don't think I would. I don't think the foreign office is what it once was. I don't think Britain is once what it was. And I don't think being a diplomat is once what it was either. I think to be a civil servant of any kind, not just in the Foreign Office, but across Whitehall is really difficult these days because I do worry that the trust between ministers and civil servants has completely broken down. Civil servants are regularly trashed as thwarting government will, being enemies of the people, of standing in the way of government, and very unfairly criticised. And the UK has gone from being one of the stalwart defenders of the international rules-based order to being one of the countries beginning to challenge it. And that is very hard for diplomats. So I'm not 100% sure I would recommend joining the diplomatic service today. I think there are other ways to engage with the world and make a difference, and it's not through the British Foreign Office anymore. Well, thank you for demotivating our largely civil servant listening audience. As we know, the people who are our super fans are already trapped in their Whitehall jobs, so I'm sure this was very inspiring for them. Yeah, I'm sorry, because I know we have Foreign Office people who listen to this show, There's one other aspect I really want to mention, and then we're not going to mention the B word again on this episode, (laughs) but one consequence of Brexit for the civil service is that every single subsequent decision taken by this government is warped by the continuing denial to accept the consequences of Brexit. We are constantly having to talk up trade opportunities with the rest of the world, play down some of the real genuine consequences for businesses and investment between the UK and the EU. And so the sort of lingering consequence of Brexit is that it is kind of warping everything we say or do as a government. And that imposes huge stress on the civil service. And if they call it out, then they're accused of not being on board, not being with the project, not being on message. And that is very, very hard because the role of civil servants is to try and give objective advice to ministers. And that becomes very difficult. So that's another reason. I think this is a crucial point, Alex, and I'd like to draw it out more because to me, it ties into the enduring disorder. So much of policymaking in our now dysfunctional democracies is about giving the appearances of achieving wins for the next election cycle or for the narrative of the partisan practitioner or the partisan PR management because we don't have consensus politics at home. When there's consensus politics, you don't need these extreme short-term wins so that you can showcase them. But now, whether it's British policy towards Libya or the trade deal with Australia or New Zealand, things were done that were about achieving the media optic of a win to justify a previous decision, you know, the exactly. B word. Maybe exactly. you could speak more to how 
something I've noticed is with the way the news cycle and social media and Google News, it makes the turnaround on an event so much shorter. In other words, the pressures on people who are in government is to have a win or an implication or we responded to the Houthi attacks within a 24 to 48 hour news cycle. And I think that creates not only pressures, but not a sustainable environment to make policy in. That's another very good observation. It picks up the point you were just getting at, which is we're under pressure. And here I feel real sympathy for politicians and governments everywhere, actually. They're under huge pressure to react immediately. That can sometimes lead to decisions being taken where it gives the appearance of acting rather than necessarily taking the time to invest and achieve the substance of something genuinely worth doing. And that's another thing that also changed over my time in the Foreign Office. As a junior diplomat, the presentation of a policy was less important than the substance of a policy. So when we gave a recommendation to ministers, there would always be at the tail end of the recommendation a few comments about when we're explaining this policy, we recommend you draw on these lines. But that was after the substance of the decision had been taken. Now what happens is when you put a recommendation to a minister, the vast majority of the argument is about how we present it. Often a decision would be based on, well, this is easier to present than that decision would be. So the presentation and the communication of policy has in many cases become more important than the substance. And that really bothers me. Communication of a policy is important. Nobody's denying that. You have to be able to explain to your public why you are doing something why it matters. Churchill was a great communicator. Arguably, one of the things that Joe Biden has failed to do is explain sufficiently to the American population quite what's at stake in Ukraine. I know, and sometimes he does the right policy and communicates it poorly, you know what I mean? Which yeah, is tragedy. Exactly. He has the underlying right policy. It's just the communications are off. Exactly. I'm going to end with one more thought on the difference between when I joined the Foreign Office and how I see the challenge for diplomats today. My formative years were spent coming out of World War II. My father fought in World War II and was shaped by the existence of the United Nations and the creation of these astonishing series of international conventions on human rights against torture on international humanitarian law, war crimes, the Genocide Convention, to protect refugees. Now, obviously, we shouldn't just say, well, these are carved in stone and they can never be updated or changed, but they really provided a pillar and a framework and a set of common values. And what we're now seeing is the UK challenging a lot of these conventions now, as a diplomat, one of the standard things we used to do is try and uphold these conventions overseas and try and encourage other countries to adhere to them. And our moral authority to do that is severely undermined if we ourselves are challenging or breaching those conventions. And so I think that makes it much harder for British diplomats. We don't want the story to be about us. So I think that's also a challenge for British diplomats. 100%. And that's what the Russians and the Chinese want. As soon as they can say, look, they're hypocrites. 
Yeah. It couldn't but undermine our credibility and the credibility of the very institutions that the West has built. And and I uh, I would say I'm very worried by this because I don't see it getting better. So tell me about you, Jason. You're younger than me. What were the formative periods in your career and in your lifetime? And how does that shape your perspective on things? Sure. I think I'm actually going to start with my folks, Alex, because you made the interesting point about your parents' generation and their participation in World War II. I think that for my parents' generation, and particularly my specific parents, it was 1968. And if I Vietnam. think of what has shaped their worldview, it was that they were both at Columbia in 1968 oh. when there were the student protests against Vietnam and for civil rights. And my dad was at the Columbia radio station, WQXR, when the students took over the campus. And they went from being kind of from that hippie, smoke pot, protest the war generation, to then seeing a lot of the things that they had protested for happen. So they are really optimists. So what I'm going to say is that I grew up in a household and at a time in both New York and in suburban New Jersey, where it seemed that things were always getting better. You could have a better standard of living than your folks, or we were told that we would. Things were moving in this way. And I never thought about being involved in foreign policy making and that, you know, the world was a particularly dangerous or precarious place. And then the 9-11 happened. And my entire career, as well as my outlook, has been shaped by this. I stopped doing science and I just moved to Beirut. I didn't know how to study Arabic. I enrolled at the AUB and it turned out that was a very bad place to study Arabic because everyone speaks English and French in Beirut. And then I was winging it and I was in Morocco and I had my Fulbright in Egypt. So I'm going to confess, I didn't see the Arab Spring coming. And when it did happen, I was optimistic, Alex. I thought particularly for Libya, given the potential wealth of the country, not only sovereign wealth, but oil and human capital, which is important, and geographic capital with the coastline and proximity to Europe. I thought the Libyans would do a great job of it if they were given the right opportunity. I didn't see that the global enduring disorder and foreign meddling and being pulled in a million directions and lack of leadership inside Libya would lead to the bifurcation after 2014 and the failure of the Libyan state to correct the flaws of Qaddafian economic institutions. So Jason, 9-11 was a formative, defining, changing moment for you in a huge way because you left university and went straight out to the region. Now, one thing that was very, very firm for me is I never had any doubt that the UK was a force for good in the 80s and 90s. I was in the foreign office I saw the instructions I was being sent, and it was always to try and make the world a better place. Now, people might agree or disagree with the policy choices that we were making, but I personally never felt any doubt that the motivation behind it was well-intended and that we were trying, even if we sometimes made mistakes, often made mistakes, to make the world a better place. So I felt the UK as a good player on the world stage. Now, I want to ask you, you were outside the government, you were in the region. How did the US look to you 
from where you sat in the region. And so you were there during the Iraq war as well. Did you have that? I went to Iraq right after the invasion. So in 2003, when I was living in Cairo, a buddy and I flew to Jordan. We hitched a ride from Amman to Baghdad. We saw an IED in Fallujah on our way in, which was very exciting. There was some military personnel who diverted us. We were, you know, a few minutes late from seeing this IED actually explode, but they, you know, searched our car and whatever. And I was walking around not only the green zone, but hitching taxi cabs around Iraq in, I think, September, October of 2003. But the trajectory here is one of disillusionment, right? And in other words, I thought America could help the region if we did it with regional partners and our European allies, which wasn't what was playing out because of the heavy handedness of hyperpower, go it alone America. But since the Arab Spring, I just don't believe that our institutions can make policy coherently towards that region. And I think that the very nature of the enduring disorder, whereby we can't coordinate with our European allies properly and Democrats undo what Republicans have done and Republicans undo what Democrats have done, it's not possible in the current iteration to make these things work. And what I was trying to sketch there with my own personal trajectory is that because I wasn't trained in the academy, in other words, I learned Arabic in the field, I encountered poli sci works by reading them, not by being trained in political science. I have a more disillusioned view because I kind of just interacted with it as an outsider and it didn't work the way that I would have expected it to. And this is what ties back to my parents in 1968. They naively had a faith in American institutions. So it's like, okay, we may not know how to make Mideast policy now because the 9-11 had just happened and we've been dealing with the Soviets. But, you know, give it five or 10 years, we're going to create huge expertise. If you go off and learn Arabic and get a Fulbright, you're going to be shaping policy and senators are going to be calling you up and whatever. And my reality is on the rare occasions that I do talk to senators, staffers, never the senators themselves, that doesn't shape policy. And as we've discussed on previous shows, I think that I've emerged from that, particularly my experiences in Washington, more cynical than you, that we need so much root and branch reform, not only of our international institutions, but even of how the US and UK governments themselves work. Jason, that was a brilliant explanation of how those experiences have shaped your perspective. I got a little bit thrown off, however, when you talked about whenever you engaged with senators, staffers, never the senators themselves, because I actually met and married a senator's staffer after I went to call on who I thought was the senator and was palmed off with the staffer. But luckily, (laughs) it ended well because I ended up marrying him. So it's a happy story at the end. And I want to say I've met many brilliant people on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staffers and what's called the HVAC, you know, the House Foreign Affairs Committee staffers. These are brilliant people. The question is just how is policy actually formed? And I want to say, because I didn't grow up in the beast, Alex, just to kind of conclude here, Mm -hmm. I was naive and I own that now. I thought it was going to be like, oh, we ran an experiment. If we're seen to support the Israelis too much, it won't help in solving the conflict. So our policy needs to be changed and we need to give the Israelis tough love and push them in this way. And then we can have a more balanced region and it's going to be great and, you know, kumbaya. 
And then the reality is that policy is not created or crafted because you've proved it would be better in the long term for both the Israelis and Palestinians if we X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, there are, you know, domestic and emotional and media reasons that no one cares about the arguments that have you just you, that you've just put forth. And the enduring disorder, I think, makes this even worse. I want to come on now for the last tail end of this discussion to how do we think the current graduating generation feel about their world? So your parents and I came up in a moment where we felt confident we could make a difference and that we could do good in the world. You had that experience of disillusion based on your reality in the field. I really worry that today's generation are growing up really cynical. Oh, well, all politicians are the same, or they're all as corrupt as each other. I worry that that is a perception that is being created. I don't think they feel the two-party system delivers for them. They don't trust our electoral system anymore. They think that businesses have too much influence on our politics, and they don't feel that politics is the way to make a difference. We're not attracting the right kind of people to run for office. And I don't think all those criticisms are wrong. You also mentioned your parents' generation had the strong faith that life would be better for their kids. Today's generation, they can't afford a house. The cost of going to college is really expensive. They're saddled with student debt. They're delaying getting married. They're delaying having kids. And then they think, do I even want to have kids? Because what kind of planet is going to be left? So I do worry that there is a more cynical generation and a disillusioned generation rising up. I don't blame them for feeling that, but it worries me. I think that's the key point is that although we're speaking in generalities, the more I've lived and spoken to people, the more I see that there is a lot of truth or a lot of reasons for these generalities to echo. So I'm old enough that I grew up with a degree of optimism, not only about America and the American dream, but our ability to make foreign policy. That disillusion happened later in my 30s or whatever. When I think about my peers who are five to 10 years younger than me, particularly in the Middle Eastern studies field, if they're 10 years younger, they could never go to Syria or Yemen. It was too dangerous for them. Those are places that are so broken, what can never be done? I didn't have that experience. I had a great time in Syria. I thought it was going to be, you know, moving in the right direction. So they are, by the very nature of being a little bit younger, they could never have had that optimistic personal connection with a place like Syria or Yemen that I had. So those factors really, really affect how people feel about the world, their politicians and foreign policy. And I think you almost can't stress them enough, which is that if you're not in the very moneyed professions, Life is relatively less good now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And you just can't really dispute that. And that's why we have populism and neo-populism on the right. And we have left-wing Sanders and Corbyn-style stuff on the left. People want that they have their health care and that they can afford their mortgage. Yeah. Another thing that I think affects today's generation, although I will say it also affected me, was the impact of COVID. For the 20-year-olds of today, who aged 16, 17, and 18, were in lockdown, isolated, learning online, that must have created huge psychological 
damage as well. So, Alex, essentially what I've learned is that you walked uphill to school in the snow both ways every day. (laughs) We had it tough when I was young. (laughs) But it was a better time. And men were men, women were women, and there was justice. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little bit of, in fact, that is an outrageous parody. I was very lucky. I was born in an optimistic time. So, after the break, now that you've heard enough about what we blather on about, let's hear some really interesting and provocative listeners' questions so we can hear from all of y'all out there. The first question we have is from Oliver, who gives some very nice feedback, says he loves the show and that he thinks it's better than inverted commas, surprisingly good. (laughs) He wants to ask us about the role of capacity building and how do we entrench good government. And he writes, looking back at the Arab Spring, the winner was Tunisia, the losers Syria and Libya with Egypt somewhere in the middle. Tunisia had the best institutions, forged by French influence, and where appointments were largely meritocratic. Not so sure about that, but yeah. Syria and Libya's appointments were nepotistic, and Egypt lay somewhere in between. We cannot dictate when a population decides to attempt a regime change, but we may be able to help the change be a success by consistently working with institutions to create capacity. Do you agree? And if so, what are the pitfalls and how can we do this better? Jason. Very important question. I'm all about capacity building. And I think a huge mistake was that in Libya, we fought you know, generals fighting the last war. We were afraid of all the imposed nation building that had failed in Iraq. So we didn't do enough capacity building in Libya. And the Libyans in the 2012-2013 period, they were hesitant of too much Western capacity building. But there was the opportunity to train the general purpose force that fell through because there wasn't enough U.S. commitment to it. And Obama had a very hands-off approach to let the Italians do this and the British do that. And, you know, there wasn't enough, what I would say, coordination on capacity building. I want to push back on the idea that Tunisia is a success of the Arab Spring. That was certainly the narrative five to eight years ago. But remember that Qais Saeed is a dictator now. Their economy is in free fall. They have a sovereign debt crisis. Yes, there is to some extent more of a free media, but the Arab Spring has been Arab winter pretty much everywhere for a long time. And it's, you know, freezing in Tunisia now, showing just how the whole thing, unfortunately, in my paradigm, because it happened during the enduring disorder, has been riven by misinformation and the Russians blocking thing on the Security Council. And I wish that there could be a coherent international community that could do the capacity building that Oliver talks about. What are your thoughts, Alex? So I'm going to approach this question, not related to the Middle East, but just on the principle of helping support countries trying to develop democracy in their own country. Yes, I 100% agree with Oliver. Democracy, as we all know, is not just elections, but it's having supportive institutions, a free media independent court system, functioning political parties. 
So part of promoting democracy and helping build up good governance in a country is definitely capacity building. But the real magic pixie dust isn't what's written in the constitution, isn't the outward form of all these institutions necessary though they are. It's having the right political culture. 100%. That is so difficult. That concept of the loyal opposition, that concept of not lying in parliament, that concept of accepting defeat in elections, regathering, regrouping, and working to win the electors' trust the next time round. That is so much harder. And that I don't know how you do because that has to come from people themselves deciding they want to embrace that culture. And countries that have done well in democratic transitions have often had a legacy of previous experiences of that. So, for example, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Baltic states and Georgia had had moments of independent status, functioning governments, and brief periods of democracy before the Soviet Union crushed them again. And so they found it easier to rebuild and resurrect those than countries that never had that experience at all, which, by the way, I would argue includes Russia itself. That political culture, that's a pixie dust. That is something that needs to come from within. And it really plays well with the listeners' questions because Tunisia had its dastur, which is the Arabic word for constitution, experience in the 19th century. So Tunisia had a constitutional tradition, and Egypt has a national tradition going back 5,000 years, whereas, of course, Syria and Libya are artificial states with colonial borders with different Ottoman wilayat and different peoples just jammed together. So yes, he's exactly right. This pixie dust that both you and the questioner are getting at is the, shall we say, the authenticity of the polity. And we're not in any way charting on new ground here. So I have a special question that a listener has addressed just to you, Alex. Uh Uh-huh. He says, I am a young FCDO diplomat focusing on Central Asia. Through listening to all your episodes, I have come to understand that you and Jason have slightly different views on Israel-Gaza. And I, as a young Brit who opposes Brexit and the Tories, but nonetheless feels stifled by institutional culture at the FCDO vis-a-vis the Palestinians, I find myself more aligned with Jason's views, but am unable to express them in the workplace. Therefore, I want to ask you, Alex, what should UK-US support for Israel look like? Do you agree that Israel's struggle against Hamas and other Iranian proxies like Hezbollah, if not Iran itself, is truly existential? I'm wondering, is the West duty-bound to help Israel preserve its very existence and security at all costs. And a lot of the debate these days about the ceasefire and whatever is losing sight about this. For me, the more I think about it, it's just like the West has to help Ukraine, whether Zelensky is flawed or whether they have the right counteroffensive or not. So I'm going to pause there. He asks more interesting things, but I want to hear your first response to that, Alex. Yes, I think it is absolutely incumbent on us 
to support Israel and preserve its right to exist in a secure neighborhood. I have absolutely no doubt about that. So I do want to reassure you, if there's any doubt about my views on that, then I apologize. I also, however, think that the role of a good friend and ally is to be a tough and honest good friend and ally. And where we think Israel has made mistakes or is breaching international law, we should be tough and clear about that. True friends give tough messages. We should have been much tougher on the construction of settlements in the West Bank over the past few decades. We should have been far clearer, not in just saying we oppose them, but implying there would be a consequence in our relationship with Israel if those settlements continue to be built. But let me flip this. I also think we have to absolutely be much tougher on the Palestinians. I find myself coming to the view that it probably is time to disband United Nations Refugee and Works Agency and find a different forum and body for delivering aid to the Palestinians. I think it is long past time for us to accept the Palestinian Authority is not an effective representative of the Palestinian people and they need better leadership that explicitly recognizes Israel, that does not teach young Palestinians, that the Israel is the source of all their problems, and that people who die committing terrorist attacks, they are not martyrs and heroes, they are terrorists. So I believe there needs to be a root and branch reform and change, both in terms of tough messages to Israel and to the Palestinians. And then finally, within the region, we need to be robust on Iran and its proxies. I support what we are doing to uphold freedom of navigation in the Red Sea. And I actually take some tiny bit of heart and comfort from this horrific, horrific moment about what's going on in Israel and Gaza. The fact that countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt are working with the US and Israel and starting to think about what could be post-conflict scenarios for Gaza and for the Palestinians, I personally find very encouraging. So maybe out of this ghastly, ghastly moment, something different might emerge. Alex, great answer. It's all about the tough love. Yes, when the history is written, Clinton and Blair and Cameron and W are going to have to answer for allowing the settlements to continue and getting us into a more intractable situation. And we probably would have been able to help Israel when its very existence was threatened more if they had done less settlements and that there had been more of that tough love relationship. But I think you really hit the nail on the head. All bets are off now. And the role of UNRWA and of the PA and of different institutions is going to all have to be reopened because we're in such a quagmire. I think it's a moment to go back to first principles. And the listener is right. One of those first principles is that Israel has the right to exist. But that's Israel in a pre-1967 iteration, maybe with some boundary swaps. 
So next question, also directed to you. I guess the listeners really love you, particularly when they're British. (laughs) Or they really disagree with me. (laughs) The, The listener says, I work at the British MOD, and I'm concerned about the precedent that October 7th sets. The precedent cannot be that terrorism can achieve its goals, that one of the worst acts of terror in history will be a victory for Iran and its resistance. Bibi may be a neo-populist moron, and I agree with Jason's calculation, but sometimes we have no choice. We can't let Iran and the proxies win. If I was a British foreign policy maker, and I thought that one of our allies against the Nazis was a complete moron and neo-populist idiot, I would still support him. Doesn't it behoove us to have dumb allies over savvy enemies? Thank you for that question. I think, however, I'm going to push back and try and turn around the premise of that question. Of course, if you frame it that way, we shouldn't let terrorism win. How could anyone disagree with that? But I don't think we should look at the situation in Israel-Gaza through that lens. We need to look at the situation in Israel and Gaza and go back to first principles, which Jason was just talking about. How do we go back to a situation where Israel feels secure and the Palestinians have justice consistent with international law. And it's not about being wagged by what Hamas did, but by addressing what should have been established a long time ago, which is a permanent sustainable peace and a land both for the Palestinians and for the Israelis. When we addressed the situation in Northern Ireland, it wasn't about letting Sinn Féin and the IRA win. It was about trying to come up with a settlement that allowed Protestants and Catholics and different people who lived in that country live at peace and stability with each other. And the minute you frame it as we mustn't let the terrorists win, you're always actually reacting to whatever the terrorists do. So I don't accept the premise of the question. That's a really brilliant way of framing it, Alex, because winning and losing is the wrong way to look at international politics. And it actually goes against the global enduring disorder paradigm. It's wrong to make anything into a zero-sum game. If you think that when Republicans win, we, the Democratic people, have to lose, no. If they have good economic policies, we should all win. That's exactly the mistaken looking of Israel-Palestine as two tribes. I think that they can share the land and it's going to be better for everyone with the right solution. Right. But to be clear, going back to the questioner, we're not saying that means we roll over and just buckle in and do whatever terrorists want us to do. Of course not. But we have to be guided by what we think is right for both peoples in that region. And for us and for the world. Um, And yes, the terrorists should lose in the long term. Okay. Let's take things to a non-Israel-Palestine way. Could you read question six to me? We have a question from Alan responding to our episode on corruption in plain sight. As a more general rule, in a corrupt country or company, it's impossible for those who are not corrupt even to exist. They are inevitably expelled. And how many honest people would choose to become policemen when they know that the police take bribes? None. Once corruption has set in, it becomes self-perpetuating. The honest are either corrupted 
or they remain outside the structures of power. So the real question is not why some countries are corrupt, but why some are less corrupt than others. Wow. Alex, how did we get such smart listeners? This is a very brilliantly phrased question. It gets at the interplay between culture and institutions and feedback loops. In a place like Libya or Syria, where you achieve high office to enrich your family and clan and network, you would only try to achieve high office to enrich your family and clan and network. And therefore, it's discredited to even try to do something like be a policeman or an official, and and therefore institutions don't work. I think that there are many negative feedback loops at play in countries that have a lot of corruption. And it's important to say that these are not embedded in a given culture. There is not a lot of this kind of corruption in the UAE or Qatar or Kuwait. So it's not an Arab thing. It is a more broken state, poor state, Egypt, Syria, Libya, Lebanon thing. You know what I mean? But I think you need the right laws and right structures. And that we've seen in Scandinavia the introduction of more corruption. So it's not that the Scandies are better or more honest than us. As soon as you have a situation where the Karolinska Hospital in Sweden is going to be privatized to the highest bidder, and then they can have no bid contracts for billions of kroner and engage in something which is like what happened in the former Soviet Union, even though it's in Sweden, what do you know? You generate a corruption cycle in what had been arguably the model for uncorrupt, transparent public governance. So I think it's a structural thing that then begins to change cultures. And even in a country like Sweden and one like America, we are beginning to see more negative cycles towards corruption. But there are some countries, and I'm going to mention Greece and Portugal here before getting your thoughts, Alex, who have managed to exit the cultural negative feedback loops and create positive feedback loops. I am not an expert on the Portuguese or Greek economies, but if you see the way that they exited their dictatorial periods, joined the EU, cut back on tax evasion, and have really seen their economies grow, we're in a situation now where the Portuguese or Greek per capita GDP and productivity is at the level almost of Italy or Spain. And you have to keep in mind that Italy and Spain were countries that had twice as large economies and were vastly more technological. I mean, Northern Italy was an industrial powerhouse and we've seen Portugal and Greece almost catch up. So you can create cultural, structural things that really punish these negative corruption cycles. Maybe you can tell us more. So my answer is quite simple. I don't think any society is immune from corruption, but I do think democratic, transparent societies are less corrupt. It doesn't mean it never exists, but the ability to expose corruption and hold the perpetrators to account is a better deterrent than enclosed authoritarian regimes where the corruption is hidden or where there is no ability to throw the bastards out. So (laughs) it's not a perfect answer, but by and large, democracy and transparency are the best ways to curtail corruption. Alex, 
does sitting on the mountaintop of <laughs> your now venerable a viewpoint give you some ordering lessons to share? I don't know if I can help order the globe, unfortunately, but I do think I've learned a little bit about how to order my own personal life. And the biggest lesson I've learned is do what interests and motivates you rather than what you think will deliver you the quickest route to success. The jobs that I had most success at in the foreign office were the ones where I was fascinated by the subject matter or inspired by the country. And the jobs that I did less successfully were the ones where I applied to them to sort of tick a box and fill in that I had done that particular job or task or role that I needed to progress. And I did not do well at them. And that's a good recipe for life. Do what interests and motivates you. Don't be driven by this sense that there is a certain career path that you must take. My other life lesson which I think does apply to ordering the disorder, is that we have to not allow ourselves to become apathetic or too cynical. Apathy is the death of democracy and cynicism is the death of democracy. So I'm never going to fall into that trap. So those are my two parting thoughts. And I know I sound a bit preachy on this and my kids roll their eyes at me. But... um. I want to say thank you to the people who listen, and I'm never afraid to be challenged and questioned. I don't expect that I always get things right. Of course not. I like to be challenged. I often get things wrong. I like to acknowledge it when I've got things wrong, and I like to change my mind when somebody has a better perspective. So keeping an open mind maybe is my third parting thought. Oh, Alex, you are so wise. Stop ribbing me, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) I would say these are very boomery lessons. My folks would say the same. I think they may be nonetheless correct because when I've stopped loving writing a report about Libya or doing a due diligence, I couldn't do it well. And when I remain passionate about writing about the enduring disorder, doing the podcast, the pods are good and my articles are good. And I'm going to toss out one of my takeaways from the listener questions, and then we'll hear one from you. So I want to say that I have difficulty expressing with courage publicly, not privately, my view that the West and Israel and the forces of order and Ukraine and our Arab Sunni allies who are also fighting terrorism should be allowed to step up. I have like a struggle within me whereby I don't want to say something that could come across as being not paying attention to the humanitarian suffering, not only of Palestinians, but of Yemenis and of others throughout the region. But then again, I have something inside me that says that there are principles here. As much as I'm against neopopulism, We've got to be against some of these disordering actors and really bring together a coalition. So I don't want to do it the way Netanyahu is doing it. Of course, I think that that's wrong. But let's be so courageous in getting that conference where the 
Qataris and the Egyptians are going to get the hostages back, but then we're going to dump lots of aid and capacity building on the Palestinians, but we're going to be ruthless as fuck to get out the causes of terrorism. And it's going to require a huge amount of courage. Do you know what I mean? I think we need to be really ruthless and maybe throw away previous rules of engagement because this is like a hardcore issue. And that's going to be my takeaway from the questioner of going back to first principles and maybe cutting funding here and re-educating there. My takeaway from the listeners' questions is rather similar to my little homily on guidelines for life, (laughs) which is what I took away from their questions was the importance of maintaining moral clarity. And last week, we heard from Evgenia Karamurza and the righteous outrage in her voice about how we helped build Putin up into the monster he eventually became because we kept on trying to reset. We kept on convincing ourselves that we would be able to compromise or work with him, or we wanted to keep doing business with him. So what I took away from the listeners' questions is we need to have this moral clarity on Israel and Hamas. Israel is a democracy. It has a right to exist. And we need to keep that principle in mind very clearly. And we need to understand that Hamas is a terrorist organization. And we should not let ourselves be blurred and blinded where somehow all sides are equally bad and well, but what about this and what about that? Moral relativism is a very slippery slope. Well, that's it for this week. If you want to help us fight moral relativism and order the disorder, you can tap follow right now and you'll be notified when every episode launches. That's right. And we're also on social media. Just search for Disorder Show. But also, we've just launched a new substack ordering the disorder. The link to it is in our show notes. We'll be sharing extra information about the topics of our episodes and our guests and more of our musings. So please subscribe. It's all free. Our producer is George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have an orderly week. Thank you.